Just as a, um, a note of thanks, we, um, we do thank you as our church family. We've, uh, even though we've only been ministering here for seven years, we've been involved with the church since 2003. So that's, uh, that's some time, uh, 17 years, and uh, we've made many deep friendships. And um, you will uh, leave a, uh, a part of our heart will be left here. And uh, we thank you. We thank you for all the notes of encouragement on our transition out. And uh, we thank you for the way you've actually honoured us. Uh, it's undeserved, as we all know, because of who we are. But um, we thank you anyway. So it's been a blessing. As you would have noticed uh, by even this morning's songs, uh, when you start thinking about Christmas, when you start thinking about particularly the songs of Christmas, the theme of glory tends to resonate across our songs. Either talking about God's glory or talking about Jesus' glory. You know, if this time of year we all become a Latin linguist, don't we? You say, what do you mean we become Latin linguists? Well, we, we, swing, we sing that uh, song, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. What does that mean? Glory to God in the highest. This morning we sang that wonderful song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. And one of my favourite lines from, I guess, my all-time favourite Christmas carol is, O Holy Night, and towards the end of that carol, it goes like this, Christ is the Lord, O praise his name forever, his power and his glory evermore proclaim. Fall on your knees, O hear the angels' voices, O night divine, O night when Christ was born. Even though at this time of year we, we do sing these wonderful anthems of God's glory, I think generally when we talk about the concept of, of glory, it's hard for us to imagine and understand. I'll give you a way of example of the way in our culture, we, we have diluted the concept of glory. You're probably going to hear this a lot in the next uh, few days where some commentator, some sports commentator will, will talk about a, a glorious shot. Yes, it will be the New Zealand cricket team and that's okay. But we talk about a glorious shot or we hear of a, a team or a, a business returning to its former days of glory with relation to profit or, or, I don't know, meeting customer demands on time. But these sort of concepts just don't do justice to glory, do they? They don't do justice to the concept of glory. I think we, we begin to understand the concept of glory a little bit more when you consider the moments in your life when you've stopped and you've looked at the marvels of the creation around you. I'm sure there's times in your life when 
when you, you look towards the setting sun and you see its resplendent glory as a deep red colour comes across that sunset who hasn't looked into the heavens in the middle of the night have we all done that you, looked into the, you look into the middle of the night and you're just astonished by the brilliance of those starry galaxies above you may have even had the opportunity to be beneath the surface of the sea under amongst the vast array of coral and vibrant colour as you watch the, the life of the sea before you. You see, that's closer to an understanding of glory. Why? Because Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. You see, glory is always associated with an object. And the object that the psalmist is talking about here is God himself. And he says because he is creator and because he is sustainer, we see his glory when we marvel at those things. You see, this morning I want us to discover and consider together our response towards God's glory. Because I don't think that you cannot respond. Whether you're a person of faith or whether you're a skeptic, whether you're sitting here questioning Christianity at all, when you're confronted with the glory of God, a response has to be made. When you wrestle with the concept of God and His glory, a response is required. And to guide our thoughts this morning, we're going to look at two, predominantly two passages. We're going to look at Isaiah 6 and we're going to look at John 12. But ringing in the back of your head, I want you to just get to the concept. How will I respond to God's glory? So if you've just got your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah 6. And to help with the context of Isaiah 6, this is where Isaiah receives a vision from the Lord. You read the very first phrase on Isaiah 6.1 and it gives us the context of the time. In the year that King Uzziah died. So Isaiah the prophet comes to the temple and there's a, there's a crisis of sovereignty within the land. The king is dead. Uzziah is dead. You can turn to Second Chronicles 26 a little bit later and have a look at that. That will give you the history behind this particular king. This king reigned for 52 years and he was a good king in the sight of the Lord. That was his mandate. He was a good king. He restored Israel's military power and economy. He was victorious over the Philistines in war. He built towers in Jerusalem and strengthened the city walls. 
Actually, if you read uh, 2 Chronicles 26, it tells you he actually built machines in those towers. Fascinating. He dug massive cisterns in the desert. Why? To store water and stimulate great expansion of the nation's agriculture. He was a king who was much loved. But please turn with me to 2 Chronicles 26. And let's read what happens to this, this king who, who so fervently followed the Lord. 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. says this but when he was strong he grew proud to his destruction when we read those words we should shudder this man this king who followed the Lord wholeheartedly towards the end of his life this is his testimony when he was strong when he had accomplished all things in life, he grew proud. And this led to his destruction. His later years of life were marred by the sin of pride. Why? Because as you read this account, he tried to play God. He, he boldly entered the temple and arrogantly claimed for himself the rights that God had given only to the priests. These priests tried to stop him. And as God's judgment upon him came out, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Now, this disease of leprosy here is known now is, is not equivalent to our modern disease of the same name. But it is a skin disease. And our English translation describe it as leprosy, but probably a, a better way of thinking about this was the key thing is that this disease was a visible manifestation of divine judgment. Now, like what one commentator said, in the form of a skin eruption. If you looked at his eye, you, you could not but understand that God had imposed a judgment upon him because of his pride. And because of this, he became separated from his people. And he had to live in a house, a separate house, as a leper, cut off from the house of the Lord, Second Chronicles 26, 21. You see, according to the law, if you were ceremonially unclean as he was with this skin disease, you were to be isolated. He was isolated because of his pride. He was unable to discharge his duties, particularly those connected with the temple. And therefore he reigned for the remainder of his years with his son in a co-regent type thing. And this is where we come across this vision in Isaiah chapter 6. Uzziah has died and Isaiah is coming to the temple to sink Seek consolation and comfort. Because this king was loved and revered. 
but it's amazing. As Isaiah comes to the temple, he gets way more than he bargains for. He gets way more than he bargains for. You see, when Uzziah the king was dead, Isaiah entered the temple. He saw another king. The ultimate king. The one who sat forever on the throne of Judah. He saw the Lord. Let's read these verses, the first four verses. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. What a vision of the Lord. Isaiah came for consolation and he saw the eternal king on his throne. I just want to note three things about this vision. Firstly, please note that he only saw the hymn of the glory of the Lord. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's a picture of the glorious Lord, and, and all Isaiah is seeing is the very train of his robe. Much like Moses, right? When Moses wanted to see God's glory, he had to hide in the cleft of a rock. And God's glory passed by him. He could not see the face of the Lord. And you know what the response of that was? Every time Moses went in to see the Lord and come back out again, the people looked upon him and he was radiant. He had to put a veil over his face. That's how glorious the reflection of what was going on with the people and Moses. But here we see Isaiah in the same way. sees only the train of the Lord's glory. See, no man sees God and lives. Note also the seraphim. And this is the only time in the entire scripture we, we get this title for this type of angel. It's a seraphim. They have six wings. Notice about what the wings are doing here. They too can't fully see the glory of God. Why? With two of their wings, they cover their eyes. With two of their wings, they cover their feet. I think that in some way alludes to the fact that, you know when God addressed Moses at the burning bush? A creature before his creator. What was the thing he said? Take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. I think this is very similar in the same way. These angels are representing the holiness of God by covering their feet. Acknowledging too that they are a created being. 
So their eyes are covered, their feet are covered, and with the other two wings they fly. This is the only time in Scripture we, we see an attribute of God repeated three times. We've been having a great time the last few weeks, um, few months doing searching the Scriptures and talking about how to study God's Word. So all those in those classes, I hope you realize that when you see something three times, it's important. Holy, holy, holy is what is said. I challenge you to go into Scripture and find out anywhere else in Scripture where God's attributes are described with this type of emphasis. We never see mercy, mercy, mercy. We never see love, love, love. We never see justice, justice, justice. We never see wrath, wrath, wrath. But here we see holy, holy, holy. This is a significant attribute of God. And note that this attribute, the whole earth sees. The earth is full of His glory. We read that in Psalm. Psalm 19. So firstly, the vision is we're only seeing the, the hem of the Lord's glory. We see seraphim who are other created beings covering their feet and their face and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And then we see the awesome power of their praise as they lift their voices in worship with this anthem of holy, 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 the threshold of the temple, the door lintels and everything shakes. And smoke fills the temple, signifying the Lord's presence. So that's the vision. A vision of the glory of the Lord. As I said, whenever we see a vision of the glory of the Lord, a response is required. What is Isaiah's response? Let's read it. Verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Is this a surprising response? I think not. In our Bibles, we have a really old-fashioned word called woe. And this is not, woe, stop the horses. Whoa, slow down the car. No. This is a cry of repentance as he realizes that he's in standing in the presence of a holy God. Throughout the Old Testament, when woe is ever pronounced, it's normally a judgment upon a people for their disobedience. But here you see Isaiah <laughs> pronouncing judgment upon himself <laughs> Isn't that amazing 
He's confronted with the glory of God and he, he pronounces judgment on himself and he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Before he says that, one other thing he says, I am undone. That's what the King James Version says. The ESV says, I am ruined. Whatever word you choose, I particularly like the word undone. Because it shows me that his response, he is completely unraveled before the glory of God. Modern psychologists describe this experience as one of personal disintegration. <laughs> personal disintegration. He was completely silenced by the glory and holiness and the majesty of the Lord. Why? He knew his own sinfulness before a holy God. And he knew the people's sinfulness before a holy God. He was undone. See, God's holiness and glory always causes repentance and self-awareness of a person's heart. When you're truly confronted with God's glory, repentance follows. When you're truly confronted with your own sinfulness, Repentance follows. And then let's see God's gracious response. Verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, there taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What marvelous grace. What marvelous grace. See, a heart of repentance always sees God's gracious response. This is a unique picture for Isaiah alone. I don't think any of us had had burning coals on our lips. This is a unique experience. What's not unique is the fact that he acknowledges his sinfulness. And he's caused to move in repentance. What's not unique is God's gracious response. And as we'll see in John 12, that's provided through Christ. You see, his lips required purification, and Isaiah had recognized that his, his room was linked to his tongue. He knew that the tongue is a restless evil, uh, full of deadly poison. He knew he was completely guilty before a holy God. But God, in his marvelous grace, took the immediate steps to cleanse Isaiah and restore his soul. Notice that the seraph couldn't even touch the burning coals. He had to use the tongs. 
See, Isaiah, in effect, was being cleansed and refined by holy fire. In this divine act of cleansing, Isaiah experienced a forgiveness that went just beyond the purification of his lips. This purification wasn't just about his lips. It cleansed him throughout because it says, your sin is atoned for, your guilt is taken away. Isn't that tremendous news? He was cleansed throughout, forgiven to the core of his being. All because he got a vision of the glory of God and repented. He was beyond cheap grace. You know, just the utterance of, I'm sorry. That's not Isaiah's experience here. We have true repentance. He was mourning his sin. He was overcome with moral grief, and God healed him. His sin was removed. His sin was atoned for. Now, for a second, the burning of his flesh on his lips brought a healing that extended into eternity. Have a think about that. And then Isaiah responds. This is the first time the Lord actually speaks to Isaiah in this vision. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Here am I. Send me. The immediate response to his sin being atoned for was a response of worship and obedience become God's prophet. It's a clear pattern we see here. God appears. People quake in terror. God forgives and heals. And then God sends. Isaiah knew that this was a call upon his life and, and that he was going to function as God's spokesperson as a prophet to the nation. And then God gives him a warning and a commission. Verses 9 and 10. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. See, God gave Isaiah a tough commission. He says, no matter what you are saying to the people, they're not going to hear you. No matter what you do in front of the people, they're not going to see it. Their hearts are far from me. But go anyway. Undertake this ministry in the full knowledge that the results will be negative. That's obedience. You see, when you preach to these people, Isaiah, it's going to evoke a negative response. You're going to be ignored. You're going to be scorned. You're going to be rejected. But go and speak anyway. That shows me that you love me. Isaiah is compelled by his love for his Lord. And he goes and proclaims 
to the nation their folly. But he also proclaims to the nation the graciousness of God. So this is an example from the Old Testament of the God's glory being revealed. God's glory, whenever it's revealed, requires a response. Isaiah's response was one of repentance. God's response is one of grace, forgiveness of sin. Have you experienced that in your own life? We're now going to turn to the New Testament and look at an example from John's Gospel. You see, in John's Gospel, as we've understood, for those of you who are visitors with us today, we first 20-odd weeks of the year, 26 weeks, we were going through the Gospel of John, the first part of the Gospel of John. And one of the major themes in the Gospel of John is the glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus. So let's turn to, to John 12. And we'll pick up this theme of glory. Understanding that the glory of the Lord always needs a response. John 11, just to put John 12 into context, was the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus affirms that he is the resurrection and life. And this upsets some people, right? This really upsets the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the other UCs. They get really, really angry that Jesus is proclaiming that he is the resurrection and life. They even go to the extreme and they, they keep looking for Lazarus to kill him to try and stop the testimony. So Jesus has just entered into, in Star John 12, he's just entered into Jerusalem on what we know as the traditional Palm Sunday, right? Six days before Passover. He's coming into Jerusalem as a triumphant king, riding on a donkey. And we come down to verse 20. Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was uh, from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went out and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And Jesus makes his following comments. If you go down to verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. For, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He's talking about his crucifixion. So glorification of Jesus and crucifixion are hand in hand. That's a difficult concept for us to get around, Right? Jesus cries out, Father, verse 28, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out 
And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, i.e. crucified, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus continues to make the claim that he is the Son of God. All the signs that he has done up until this point in John's Gospel point to the fact that he is the Messiah, the promised one. And the most startling truth of all, that he would be glorified through his death and resurrection, being lifted up. Jesus' glorification would come via his crucifixion. Slightly different view on glorification from Isaiah, is it not? Move over to John 12, verse 36b. This is the dialogue that's gone on, and now, now John provides some editorial comments through the power of the Holy Spirit about this whole situation, and this part is fascinating. Let's read it together. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still do not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We see here the many signs Jesus did, they still did not believe. And then John, in this editorial comment, quotes out of Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. And he says, this is a reason they do not believe, because their eyes are blind, their hearts are hard, and the only solution is repentance. Then John adds an amazing insight that we don't get anywhere else in Scripture. Have you picked it up? When Isaiah received his vision, who was he seeing? When Isaiah received his vision, who was he seeing? Verse 41 tells us, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. The vision Isaiah saw in the temple was the pre-incarnate Christ. The King of glory. That makes perfect sense, right? Because he's the one who atoned for Isaiah's sin through taking the coal of the altar. Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ. John is referring to the Christ before him. 
the one who's going to be crucified, and the one who will rise again, the one who's lifted up and said, this is the same glory. Now believe in him. And then we see the response yet again. And the response is unbelief. Let's not, let's not um, mess around with these verses, right? He said, yeah, okay, even some of the authorities believed in him, but they didn't because they feared the Jews around about them. They wanted the glory of man as opposed to the glory of God. Cheap grace, false belief, no repentance. So their response is totally different to what Isaiah saw. He turned and repented. This response is, yeah. I'd rather have the glory of men. It's a fearful response, dictated by men. It's a response of unbelief. And I'll go back to Luke 8 to help you understand this a little further. Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower. We all know the parable of the sower, right? Verse 4, And when a great crowd was gathering, and the people... Uh, from town after town came to him. He said in the parable, So went out to sow his seed, and he sowed. Some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. The birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on a rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell on thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell on good soil and, ye- and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 9. And when the disciples asked him about the parable meant, he said to them, For you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. A quote out of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. The same quote in John chapter 12. Now this is the parable. This is what it means. One's on the path, they hear it. The devil comes along and takes it away. They do not believe. The one that goes on the rocky soil, when they hear the word and they receive it with joy, but because they have no root, they believe for a while and at a time of testing fall away. It's unbelief. As for that what fell among the thorns, they are, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And there's no fruit and no maturity. As for that on the good soil, they are those who are hearing the word, hold it fast, in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. So a heart that responds to the glory of God bears fruit. Hears the word of God, believes the word of God, believes that Christ is the only way of salvation. So how will you respond today to God's glory? God's glory is fulfilled in the work of Jesus. It's fulfilled when he was crucified for the sin of the world. And yes, we are all sinners because when you're confronted with the glory of God, you've got nowhere else to hide. Your sin separates you from a holy God. But you know what? You can repent. You can fall on your knees 
and receive God's gift of grace. See, you may know the story of Christmas. You may know the story of Easter. You may have been brought up in a Christian home, but your heart is cold because you've never fallen on your knees and repented of your sin. I pray that the Lord will open your heart today. And you will respond to the glory of God in Christ. You may have never been introduced to these things. This may be the first time you've heard the message of our life-giving Saviour. Jesus is the Saviour of the world. There is no other way of salvation. Your good works don't get you there. No merit gets you there. It is a gift of God's grace. By faith, you can call out to Christ. And you can be restored. And that's marvelous. Marvelous good news. Repent and believe. And for those of us who hear, who follow Christ, don't be like Uzziah, who late in his life becomes entrenched in the sin of pride. Daily, come to the cross. Daily, look to Christ, our sufficiency, our all in all. Be daily compelled by his love and graciously serve one another. I pray that for Canterbury Gardens, that you'll serve one another in love. Do not serve out of your preferences. Serve out of God's gracious gift to you.